0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to be talking about the near-death experience and the afterlife in a very new way. We're doing a series from time to time over the course of this year with winners of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay contest about afterlife and afterlife studies. A couple of weeks ago on May the 6th, I believe we did Jeffrey Mishlove, who was the winner of the main contest. Today we're going to do Elizabeth Crone, whose essay won a smaller award, but at the same time is, I believe, the only essay in the context by someone who actually had a near-death experience and is also a very articulate student of the near-death experience. And I think that you're going to find it absolutely fascinating. We interviewed Elizabeth a couple of years ago about her book, uh Changed in a Flash, I think in 2018. So it's high time that we did this again. And it's going to be a beautiful journey. I knew know Elizabeth very well, and it's going to be a very intimate and Wonderful interview. I will say one thing that's going to happen, unfortunately, though, is when she talks about her NDE, there is going to be interference. I can't get rid of it. It will disappear after she stops talking about the NDE, but it will be there, a little popping sound, through the whole conversation about the NDE itself as she's describing it. I do not know why this happens, but it happens on the show so consistently that we just have to live with it. We tried rebooting computers, we tried everything to get us to a situation where it would not be like that. There's only one thing that helped, stopping talking directly about the NDE. When she stops describing the NDE, for the most part, the sound goes away. Now, let's move on to Elizabeth Crone, uh, who is a truly extraordinary and wise individual. So, Elizabeth, why don't we start here? Why don't we start with that evening. You're walking toward Temple with your two boys, getting ready to go into Temple, and tell us about what happens next.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Whitley. I I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to, to see you and visit with you. Um. So, this was September of 1988, so it's been... It's been 33 years now. And my two young children, four years old and two years old, and I were going to services to um, mark the first anniversary of the death of my grandfather. My husband was out of town on business and we had turned into the parking lot on what had otherwise been a beautiful, sunny September evening. And, uh, suddenly there was a very dark rain cloud and the skies just opened up and there was just a torrential rainstorm and (laughs) running late, as I typically used to do when I had young children, um, I parked the car and I didn't want to wait in the car for the rain to stop because we were running a little bit late and I didn't want to miss the hearing, hearing the reading of my grandfather's name during the service. So I told my four year old son to get out of the car and to run to the awning over the door at the entrance to the synagogue and to wait there. And I would follow shortly with his little brother. So Jeremy, who was four at the time, got out of the car and ran to the building and I watched him and and he made it safely and he was standing under the awning and I climbed over the seat of the car into the back to get my two-year-old Andy out of his car seat. And I opened the car door. I had Andy and I grabbed an umbrella that I had in the car and opened the car door and I mean, It was just unbelievable, the the force of this storm that just really came out of nowhere. And in fact, you could see off in the distance, it looked sunny. It was like this cloud was just right over the synagogue or the parking lot where I was. And so we got out of the car and I realized that I wasn't gonna be able to handle the umbrella and the two-year-old. So I put him down on the ground and I was just going to hold his hand as we made our way to the building. And so I was holding his left hand with my with my right hand and I was holding the umbrella. I had the shaft of the umbrella very low down close to my head. So my hand was high on the shaft. And the metal of my wedding ring was touching the metal shaft of the umbrella. And we took a few steps and I, I actually had a conscious thought that this was not a good idea. That I should not be crossing a parking lot with basically a lightning rod in my hand. And um, as soon as the, I thought that, I thought, well, I'm just going to let go of the umbrella. Just let it go and let it fly away, I, you know, I don't want to get hurt, so I I tried to let go, it, it's almost like my thoughts brought on this lightning, and there was a man nearby that saw what happened, and he told me later that there was a bolt of lightning with a tiny, tiny little tine of lightning that came off the big bolt, and it touched the tip of the umbrella, and that did not knock me out but it caused my hand to be paralyzed i i could not move my hand i couldn't let go of the umbrella and once i realized that then a larger bolt hit the tip of the umbrella and that's what knocked me out or killed me or you know, that was the trauma that got me near enough to death uh, that I was able to have this near-death experience. And so that that's what happened, that uh, I was struck by lightning.
0: Now, you, oh, and incidentally, folks, there's going to be some interference while we're talking about this. We had had to stop and start again in hopes of eliminating it. And as many of you know, whenever we talk about afterlife and near-death stuff, We get a lot of audio interference on this show, and I can't correct it. If we change the subject, it'll go away, but that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about this. So, you, what happens then is you basically, it's almost as if you were captured by something. I I didn't realize this aspect of it. The cloud kind of comes out of nowhere. Then it the umbrella is struck by a little bit of lightning that forces you to stay there, even though you know the danger. Right. Do you sense that you were literally captured for this experience? Was, it, was there some kind of intention there?
1: Well, I now know. After having the near-death experience and receiving the information that I got while I was there, I now know that this was definitely a planned event that was going to happen in my lifetime. It was something I had agreed to before I came into this life. And so, yes, if it hadn't, you know, if I had left the house five minutes later or turned into the parking lot 15 seconds earlier, perhaps I could have avoided it that day. But at some point in this life, that was going to happen. It, it was predestined. So, yes, I think that the fact that it happened the way it did and I I was kind of, you know, there's a, Paralysis, there's a medical term for it, which of course I can't think of the term right now, but it's, it's a lightning paralysis. When someone is struck by lightning, um, your, your muscles freeze up.
0: Right. The, the nerves are shorted out and you, can't, you don't have the ability right. to move anymore. Correct. It so happens when it, you get into t- involved with electricity. It can be very dangerous.
1: Yeah, so when that happened and I couldn't let go of the umbrella, um that was it depends on how you look at it. It was very helpful in that it allowed the larger bolt to to do its job, which was to basically kill me so that I could have this near death experience. Um and so yeah, I do believe that that was an intentional thing that happened.
0: No. It happens. And your perception is fascinating at the moment. The lightning strikes, but you don't realize exactly what's happened. So tell us exactly after. Now, we know that your body is lying there on the ground, but you don't. Tell us exactly what happened at that moment.
1: So the lightning, lightning is when a bolt of lightning strikes, it is ear-splitting, it is so loud, and it actually, excuse me, it actually um, burst my eardrums and my son's eardrums. I didn't feel the pain, I wasn't feeling any pain, but he did, my two-year-old, and he was standing there in the rain with his hands clamped to his ears, screaming, like just screaming in pain. And my four-year-old, who saw the whole thing happen, ran back out to where we were. And he took his brother by the hand and started pulling him to the building. So I thought, well, you know, (laughs) I told him not to come out in the rain. Why is he coming back out here? But whatever. I So I'm following them. I thought I was following them into the building. Well, I was following them, and I did go into the building. All three of us went in, and we were in the lobby. And there was a man walking toward where the services were from the restroom. And it was someone that I knew. And so he came over to see. But at this point, both the boys were screaming. And he came over to see what all the commotion was. But it was so strange. He was ignoring me. It, You know, he was just talking to the kids. He wasn't talking to me. And he was trying to figure out why they were screaming. And the whole thing was very disorienting. And I thought, uh, where's my umbrella? <laughs> I, I, I knew I had had an umbrella. So I looked back out. The, the door of the synagogue had these narrow windows And I looked out one of the windows and I saw the umbrella and it was lying on the parking lot, smoking. It was like a a skeleton of an umbrella and it was smoking. And my, my gaze kind of shifted to the right about 20 feet. And there was like a heap, a heap in the parking lot. And I looked at it again and I realized it was me. I, I was looking at me out there in the parking lot from inside the building. I was. Now
0: thinking, oh. let's 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 hold it right here because folks listen to her carefully. This will happen to all of you. It will happen to me. It's going to happen to Elizabeth again. And when it does happen to Elizabeth again, she's going to say, oh, I'm back. But but listen <laughs> carefully. Anne said one of the first things she said after she died and we regained communication with one another was, it looks like you're all intentionally ignoring us. And remember, that's exactly what it looked like to you, Elizabeth, when the man in the in the in the lobby was just talking to your boys and ignoring you. Right. And this world is full of people who are in that state being ignored and 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 so now the question is what exactly happened to you after you realized the heap was you
1: well i first kind of took stock of the entire situation and realized that The boys, my children were going to be fine because they were in a place that was safe and people knew them. I knew that my parents were there and that the boys were going to be fine. So I decided I wanted to go back outside and kind of see what this situation was. I still didn't get that I was dead. I just was disoriented. So... I, it was almost like as soon as I thought, I want to go see that, then I was there looking at it. And yeah. and I looked down, and I'm looking at myself on the ground, and that's when it hit me. Uh, I, you know, my response was, oh, shit, I'm dead. That's it. I'm dead. And my next thought was, um, what a waste. I mean, I was 28 years old and I felt like I had wasted 28 years because I, it, it, it was like an instantaneous understanding of the fact that death isn't the end. I mean, yes, I was dead. And yes, I saw that yet. I'm still thinking. I'm still conscious. I'm, I'm still here. And,
0: (laughs) And, and, and could you see the world around you just as, as always? Or, but wait, folks, free dreamlanders, we're taking a brief break here, uh, for ads and, uh, do enjoy, uh, the ads because, uh, if you, if you, if you do what they say, you'll enjoy your life even more. We'll be right back. Okay. You were, we're back. We're talking to Elizabeth Crone. Her book, incidentally, is changed in a flash. You can get it through us. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. I've got the title right, haven't I?
1: Yes. Oh, good, good.
0: Now, what I wanted to know is the how did the world look at that point? Because when I've been out of my body, sometimes the world's looked a little different. Other times it has been just exactly so so completely like this that I didn't even know at first I was out of my body.
1: Right. That's part of what was so disorienting about it is that to me it looked completely normal. It looked the way it always looks. So I had a hard time at first understanding that I was out of my body because uh, everything looked the same. The only difference was... It appeared that other people couldn't see me and so that that was unsettling.
0: But but you were alone in the sense that there was no other entities around that could see you.
1: At that point, correct?
0: Yes. At that point.
1: Right. Once I had gone back outside, inside the building there there was a man there that should have been able to see me, but he didn't. He couldn't. When uh, when
0: you say should have been able to what do you mean do you, do you mean that
1: I go ahead. thought I was there in normal bodily form Yeah
0: but, but what I'm asking is is not quite this that question what I'm asking is were there any other disincarnate entities that you saw that saw you No Okay No at that point Not at that point No All right it so was, then then what happened
1: so I'm out there, I'm looking down at myself, and, uh, you know, I had thoughts going through my head about, um, that I clearly had not understood that consciousness survives death, uh, prior to this point. I had not understood that. And then a light appeared. It was kind of to my right and above. It, it wasn't it wasn't a real tight ball of light that it was kind of a diffuse like the the light that would be around a light bulb, not the light bulb itself, and it was to my right and above me, and I knew that this light wanted me to follow it, and I thought well. <laughs> The boys seem to be okay. They're taken care of, and I seem to be dead. And so I'm just going to follow this light and and see what happens. So I did. I followed it, and it led me to a garden. And when I say a garden, I don't mean a garden like, like what you'd see here on Earth. This was totally... Different, but I don't really have another word to describe it other than garden. Um, there were plants and flowers that the colors were so intense, so intense. And they weren't colors that exist here. They, it, it must have been from another spectrum. It, the colors just aren't here. They don't exist. Um, and the flowers were enormous and just exploding with color. And there was a bench. There was like a, a stream, and next to the stream was a bench. And it was a very ornate bench. It had been, it, it was made of some kind of wood, and it w- looked like it had been hand-carved. It, had a lot of swirls and you know very very gorgeous bench and suddenly a voice said to me uh, sit down on the bench and the voice was the voice of my grandfather who had died a year earlier and i know it was his voice he had a very distinctive voice he was french and he had a heavy french accent and and I know his voice. And he told me to sit on the bench. So when you find yourself um, in the afterlife, dead in, you know, dead in the afterlife and your deceased grandfather tells you to sit on a bench, you sit, you just do it. And so I sat down and as soon as I sat on this wooden bench, it, it morphed around me. It like conformed to my body shape and it became the most comfortable place I've ever sat ever.
0: And you felt material. You felt like a material being in that light that came. It's almost as if it transported you into another version of yourself, perhaps that was equally material, but not in this world. Does that make sense or am I going off the base here?
1: That That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I sat down on the bench, the light moved way off in the distance. There was a range, a mountain range, and the light moved behind the mountains. So I could still see the glow from the light, but it was way off in the distance. And I was on this bench in the garden, and my grandfather, who by the way um, I do not believe that was my grandfather talking to me I, I have come to understand that it was it was God he was using my grandfather's voice to put me at ease so I wouldn't wouldn't be terrified in this place yeah, yeah
0: that would it would be upsetting to end up having a chat with God just seconds right. after you died. I mean, right. that would be a lot to a lot to take in.
1: A lot to process. So it was my grandfather's voice, but immediately I knew it was not my grandfather. And he told me that he was going to give me whatever information I wanted um, telepathically. It would just be like a download into my mind. There wouldn't be any audible speech or uh, you know it he he said i don't want to disrupt the sound of the water the flowing water that was in this brook next to the bench and and so that began our two-week conversation
0: now why would he say that he didn't want to disrupt the sound of the flowing water do you think
1: well, in life I have always always loved the sound of flowing water more more than any other sound. I I enjoy that more than music. I I enjoy it. I and I think that when no, I don't think. I know. I know that when a person dies that the heaven that you are uh, exposed to is whatever you enjoyed in life. So in life, I always enjoyed gardens, the sound of water, the aroma of flowers. Um, so I, it's whatever you enjoy in life and will put you at ease that's what you will experience that will be your heaven so I saw other people in the distance I didn't speak to anyone else but I saw them there and everyone was paired up with someone like I had my guide with me everyone did and I knew that it was part of the download of information that I got I I knew That everyone there, we were all in the same place, which was heaven, but we were all seeing a different version of heaven.
0: And you, but you could see, you could see the others, but you, but you weren't sure that they were seeing the same world you were seeing.
1: They weren't. I, I knew they weren't. I knew, you know, that someone over there may be seeing a, a, a meadow and someone over there may be seeing, an olympic-sized swimming pool if you know, what been,
0: could um, you interact with them at all
1: i don't know i didn't try
0: you didn't I, try I, no. I wonder if you were meant not to try it, I, it's, it, there's a sense that there was some kind of controlling factor here that was doing this
1: well whitley when you're sitting there and you're talking to god you don't want to interrupt the conversation
0: no i don't think so it, it
1: was- Really, no one else there that um, could have held more interest for me than than God. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> we're g- we're going to take our second break here. Those of you on the free side, and then we'll come back to Elizabeth and we're going to be talking a little bit about that conversation, and then later on we're going to get into. This wonderful essay, because Elizabeth has thought very carefully about things like why we can't pin this down scientifically and what we need to do to shift from a state of wondering about it to a state where, at least on a personal level, we can know. Elizabeth knows. She's lived this. I know because of the life I've lived. I've never had an NDE, but I I live with somebody right back there who not only had NDEs, she is both still around and embodied in another body now. So this is, this is part of my life. I'm very familiar with it. We're going to talk at anyway, later about how do we get to the point where we're comfortable with the idea that there's an afterlife. Because if we could get comfortable with that, it would be so valuable to mankind. The, the fear that has driven us for so many thousands of years would not be there anymore. And also there would be an awareness of the need to live this life in a way that gives you a good afterlife. That would change a lot of things. We'll be right back. We're talking to Elizabeth Crone. Elizabeth's book is changed in a flash. She is one of the winners of the uh, Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies uh, essay contest with her essay, The Eternal Life of Consciousness. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes because it's a wonderful, powerful essay. And above all, and the reason I chose Elizabeth as one of the essayists i most wanted to speak to well there are two reasons one she's fun as you can see and uh two this is a really empowering essay because it comes from somebody who's been there and done that and who can think very clearly about this whole subject okay so now you're in this situation where you're having uh a conversation with a very heavily disguised God. I mean, when I say heavily <laughs> disguised, let's face it, appearing as your grandfather, if that is really God, that's a pretty, pretty definitely a disguise. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: yes, I, it was the voice was disguised, not the physical appearance, because I didn't ever look at him. To see what he looked like. So I don't know if he looked like my grandfather or if he, you know, and if he did look like my grandfather, would he have been uh, 90 years old looking when my grandfather died? Or would he have been a younger version of my grandfather? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't look at him. I don't think I was supposed to look at him. I wasn't supposed to. It would have been overwhelming to me. Whether I saw my grandfather, definitely would have been overwhelming to see God. So I I didn't look. It it was just uh, a voice. It was a voice. And so we began this two-week conversation um, it, it was basically me asking questions. I was told I, I could decide whether I wanted to stay there or come back into my very burned body, um, or I could stay there. And if I stayed there, that I would follow this path through the garden to the mountain range where the light was, and I would go on the other side of the mountain range uh, that would have been a more permanent uh, ending to this life.
0: No. 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 Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I was. I was just going to say, uh, even that isn't permanent because we do cycle back.
0: So. Yeah, I was. I because I met some people who cycled were cycling back, and uh, in fact, I now know one of them in this life. I'm pretty sure. Uh, they, when we were living at the cabin, uh, toward the end of the time we had there, uh, a group of people showed up who, when I say a group of people showed up, they didn't exactly knock on the door. Uh, they came, at first they came thudding down onto the top of the meditation room, seven of them, and then they were in the room, but you couldn't see them. Uh, my listeners have heard this story, but suffice to say, I did see one of them physically briefly, and I came to understand that they were in the middle, in the Bardo, in the between lives, waiting to reincarnate. And recently for various reasons, I'm pretty sure I know one of them, uh, one of these seven people, and I'm going to meet this person physically sooner or later. And we talk a lot uh, on the internet and I, I think that we had a, we have a task, a kind of agreement together. So, so you would have gone into that other place. Did you ever get any closer to it or any idea? No,
1: no. I never left the bench until I decided to come back here.
0: And what made you decide to come back here?
1: Well, the information that I received there helped me to decide the questions I asked. I was given a lot of information.
0: Take, of, take us through it. Take us through it.
1: There was, there was a lot of, okay, first of all, I, I completely understood physics, which is so laughable because in my life here, um, I don't understand physics. <laughs> I, my, my, undergraduate degree is in business. Mm-hmm. I, I went to law school. That's about as far from physics as you can get. And, but while I was there, I completely understood the fact that time is not linear. Um, I didn't even have to ask about it because I, I just understood it, it was part of that download. I, I just knew time is not linear. I still know that now. I just don't really, I can't grasp it the way I did there. Um, and also people ask me all the time, you know, you say that time isn't linear yet. You also say you were there for two weeks. So how how do you, how does that even make sense? How were you marking time? if time really doesn't even exist. And I think what ha- what's happening or what had to happen is that I had to be able to mark time and I have to be able to think back and remember everything in linear terms, just so I can decipher it. I, I was given so much information and the only way I can understand it here is to remember it in linear terms. So uh, there was, in the garden there, there was, I call it a calendar. It wasn't really a calendar. It was three orbs in the sky. They were like, I don't know if they were planets or, or moons, but they were moving. And the way they were moving in relation to one another was marking the passage of time for me. I understood how much time was passing now in in Earth time, I was gone probably two minutes um, it was not two minutes, it was two weeks i There is no possible way I could have gotten the information I got and had the conversations I had in two minutes, so time was really um uh, time. Time isn't what we think it is here, and so I I have a very difficult time understanding that now that I'm here. One of the pieces of information I was given, well, two, two things actually. One was I was told who was going to be elected president. This happened in September, and the election was coming up in November 1988. And I was told that George H.W. Bush was going to win the election. And I was also told about the Super Bowl that was going to be played shortly after that, which was comical. I mean, I had, I don't think I had ever watched a Super Bowl. I have no interest in football. Um, and I was told that the reason I was given that information about the Super Bowl and about the presidential election was as a trigger so that when those two events happened, it would trigger in me the memory of being in the garden. And a lot of this information would come back to me. And it worked beautifully. I mean, when George Bush was elected, it was like just all of a sudden I I started remembering everything. That I had been told. So, and then when the Super Bowl, yeah, same thing.
0: Let's go back to before any of this ever happened. And try to have you looked through your life to try to understand why you might have been chosen for this? Is there anything there that you have seen that may make that make sense? That why, of all the billions of people on the planet, Elizabeth Crone was singled out and it was decided from on high, okay, we're going to zap her with lightning and then send her back and see what happens.
1: Well, I have a few theories. First of all, it's not just Elizabeth Crone. I think all of us agree to certain things before we come into a life. And that was something that I had agreed to. I think we have to have certain... Uh, learn certain lessons, have certain experiences in order to make any progress for our souls to pro- to progress, and maybe at some point reach a a point where we don't have to come back and do this anymore. I mean, this is not fun. This is this is hard being here, and. So that, that's the first thing I want to say about that. It's not just me. I think it's all of us. Uh, second of all, I think we have to go back to my life prior to being born into this life to understand this. Um, it wasn't until I met Jeff Kripel, who was a co-author of my book with me. Uh, I met Jeff in 2015. And it was a very um, serendipitous way that we met. And he actually was looking for someone to write a book with on this subject. And, and I had always wanted to write a book about what had happened to me. And we met each other. We were both invited to speak on a panel. And the night that we spoke, Uh, we decided we were going to try to write a book together. So while we were working on the book, uh, Jeff contacted a colleague of his, Eric Wargo, who wrote a book called Time Loops and explained the situation to Eric, you know, told him my story. And Eric said, and this just really made sense to me. It, It clicked for me. Eric said probably Jeff and I knew each other previously other lives and that we had agreed to come back and and to work together on this information and getting this out there and the way it would happen would be I would be struck by lightning and at some point Jeff and I would Meet each other and, and write this book. And sure enough, that's what happened. Now, in this life, before, before the lightning, I did have an experience, um, trauma. I experienced terrible trauma as a child. Um, from the time I was six until I was 12, I was raped by a babysitter. And looking back on that now, after the near death experience, uh, I realized that that there may have been a purpose in that. And that would be that every time I was being raped, I left my body. I, I, I couldn't stay there. I couldn't just take that pain. So I left and the most important part of that is that I came back each time. So when the lightning struck me, one of my first thoughts was, oh, you know how to do this. You've done this before, remember? And that all came back. So I was kind of already had. I had a comfort level with being outside my body to a degree. And most importantly, I knew how to come back when I was ready. So, I think that was about. I
0: I had trouble coming back the first time I went out of my body. A lot of trouble. I thought I wasn't going to make it. And I was thinking, my God, Anne's going to wake up in the morning with a corpse beside her. But the kind of life I lived, she lives, she's not going to even be surprised. I'm very upset about this. But fortunately, (laughs) I did get back in. For those of you who haven't heard the story, basically, I got out of my body the first time. I was taken out. I've never gotten out on my own. And um when I tried to get back in, the interior of my body was slick. like It was like mercury or metal or something. It was just very slick. And I kept falling out until I suddenly was plunged back into my childhood. And there was my father mowing the lawn. And he said, when are you going to come help me and bang I was back in my body like it split. <laughs> so they know that. In any case let's we um you weren't sure that you could get back. Even after but you but right. you you had a proficiency from this awful thing that had been happening to you as a child. You've been right. going in and out of your body. Oh boy, what an awful story. Elizabeth, yeah. my heart beats. I mean, it's such a for six long years. It's like a jail sentence or something, or a sentence to be tortured for no reason for six years.
1: Yeah, well there was This
0: world a is hard all right.
1: Yes, it is. It is. But why are we here? Why are we here? Yeah to learn. This is this is the education. This level is where we learn.
0: Yeah, and, that's why the visitors told me it was a school.
1: Yeah. And, it's hard and school. We, uh, yeah, it's very difficult. Very
0: difficult. You know, right now we're looking at climate change and the crazy man and the Kremlin and all this. It's the usual deal. I mean, it's been like this all through our history. It's a, just a very hard place. I can't help but notice you've got a lot of books about war on your... on It your, uh, uh, yeah, sort of this, fits, really fits have... the situation, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> we have separate shelves. This is my husband's shelf. He's, oh,
0: I see. He's you know
1: about World War II.
0: <laughs> when, my stuff when, is <laughs> when we were living in San Antonio, my wife Annie, we had a friend uh, who he was a, a bachelor who didn't want to be a bachelor, and he was in his fifties. And uh, he said, to Ann, you know, Whitley, Ann, will you give me some idea about how I could maybe uh, manage to?" spend get a woman to spend more than two days with me and so she said well let's go over to your house and see what your house is like because you you take your dates to your house and he said yes i do generally and because i'm a he was a very good cook and he would like to cook dinner for them and it never worked out and as soon as we walked in she took one look in his library and she said what is it, what is this he, these are all books about nazis and he said yeah i'm very interested in nazis she said this is a nazi room that is a definite no as soon as any one woman sees the nazi room they're out of here get rid of the nazi room and you'll find a wife and he did how <laughs> oh, oh.
1: oh, funny yeah, yeah well they're not my books about world war Two, but
0: no, well, I, I, I'm sort of glad that they aren't because they were sort of out of character. The Elizabeth I know isn't, how, isn't the type would be reading about Stalingrad. Well, listen, uh, we have a brief break again for our free Dreamlanders, and then we're going to get back. And I'm I'm going to sh- force myself to shift to this brilliant essay because we need to talk about it. It's important and it's valuable, and you can click through to it from the Dreamland page. And please do that because it's very empowering, especially from the fact that it comes from the pen of somebody who's been there and done that. We'll be right back. We're talking to Elizabeth Crone. Elizabeth is a uh, near-death experiencer uh, who is also a winner of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies Contest. Uh, she's written a terrific essay, and I think it's time to go on to the eternal life of consciousness. And one of the things that you talk about is why it is that science can't pin this down. And this is very important because like it or not, we live in a scientific culture. And we can listen to someone like Elizabeth all we want, but in the end, we need it to be pinned down in order to really believe it for ourselves. What is this lack of dependability in this study? Why can't we pin it down, Elizabeth? I think your answers to your discussion of this in the essay is brilliant.
1: The the short answer is, the scientific method includes um, two things, observation and, and the other thing is it, that an experiment has to be repeatable on demand and you can't repeat this. You would have to be killing people and reviving them over and over in order to be using the scientific method and you can't do that. Uh, so as far as science proving this, I don't think so. Uh, it, it's not possible because we can't kill people and bring them back legally, morally, ethically. We can't do it. Uh, there was actually a TV show about it. Um, I think it was in 2016. It was called the OA on Netflix and it was about this you know mad doctor who who did that he kidnapped five victims and he would uh, induce death and then revive them and question them about what they saw and where they went but anyway we can't do that um so as far as i'm concerned the scientific method is pretty much off the table now there are a lot of scientists doctors out there that are researching this and and claim that they're doing it scientifically. Uh, I, I don't really understand how that can be. Um, one of the things that I talk about in my essay is is uh beyond a reasonable doubt. If if that is good enough for our justice system, then it should be good enough here. If, if somebody can show evidence of something beyond a reasonable doubt, I believe that's the closest we're going to get to proof. There is no proof. It, all there is is really good evidence. Proof comes when you die and when you experience it for yourself and you see it for yourself. That's the proof.
0: Maybe it's meant to be that way. Because, after all, if we knew, as I we were talking, I briefly mentioned earlier, for certain, wouldn't we be different? Like, you have to ask yourself, what's going to happen to Vladimir Putin when he's dead? Do you have any idea of what happens to the people that do evil?
1: I have no idea. I mean, people ask me all the time, what happened to Hitler? What, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. Anne said an
0: interesting thing. She said... I asked what happened to Hitler and what happens to evil people, and she said nothing. And that, at first I thought, you mean they're not, they're not uh, punished or anything? And then I realized what she had really said was, they don't get an afterlife. Mm. They disappear. And it was the most chilling thing I have ever heard. Mo- moment, One of the most chilling moments of my life when I had the realization that she had said that they trade their immortal being for an evil life.
1: Interesting. That's a very interesting idea.
0: I, I wonder t- if it's true. I soul, bet it is.
1: The soul ceases to exist. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't ask. It, you it didn't,
0: and you—you and you never saw anybody or in, encountered anybody who was any in any sort of trouble.
1: In in the afterlife? Yeah. No. No. If be- I did, I—I I wasn't aware of it.
0: Because no. there, there has to be, there have to be billions of people who are not going to just not exist, but who have done a lot of things that they regret. Did you have, did you have a, one of those experiences of, of, uh, uh, life review?
1: I did not have a life review, but I, I review my life all the time now. And, um, are there things I regret? Of course. You know, I'm, I'm far, far, far from a perfect person. And I, you know, I sometimes I hurt people unintentionally you know sometimes I'm angry I, nobody is perfect and transgressions like that are forgiven that does not make me or anyone else a bad person that makes us human it just it, makes
0: forgiveness us human. is a very important part of of this i think there is a great deal of forgiveness but I don't know that it's unlimited,
1: right? I I I think I, I don't know, Whitley. I, this is just not something I'm I'm well versed in. I I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I haven't done much reading about it.
0: So- but you you do know <laughs> that there is an afterlife. That's the fascinating yeah. thing. You're a no know- You describe in the essay. You say I'm a knower.
1: Yeah, I just know.
0: And I haven't I, had an NDE, but I'm uh, a knower too.
1: Yes, I know you are. I, I also know that there are negative NDEs. So.
0: Tell us know, a little bit about that.
1: Uh, well, I didn't have a negative NDE, but I know that, uh, you know, bad people and even some good people can have negative experiences with near death and i don't know that there's any explanation as to why a good person would have an experience like that you know whitley have you ever met or interviewed Eben alexander
0: um I- y- yes we have had Eben on the show and he was okay. also at one of the dreamland festivals and those dear days of yore when we had dreamland festivals maybe we'll have one again sometime
1: i mean he's he's a wonderful person and i know that part of his experience was negative yes and i don't understand i don't know what the explanation for that is but i know it happens in about 10 percent of near-death experiences
0: Right, I always worry it'll happen in mine because I played too many practical jokes on my dad when I was a boy. But, but my brother I don't did. Know
1: if it works like that. What? I don't know if it works like that.
0: I hope not. Well, he's there. I know he's still mowing the lawn. I saw him. He's still waiting for me to come, come do my chores. Dad, Dad had a habit of if you didn't if your chore didn't start your chore early in the morning, he'd start it for you. So you'd be lying in bed and begging God that it would be that you wouldn't (laughs) have to to mow the lawn today, and suddenly you'd hear the lawnmower out there, and you'd think, "Oh no, I'm in (laughs) trouble."
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's worse.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well let's let's uh, get to a, a little bit more about you. You you reference an interesting study in Scientific American, an article called eyewitness memory is a lot more reliable than you think. And that was, you compared it to hearsay, which is not as reliable. What is exactly the difference? And why is eyewitness memory, has it been found to be more reliable? Because that could be very important in a case like yours, or in mine for that matter, with all these visitor experiences. Could it be that these eyewitness memories are actually quite accurate?
1: Yes, and they have done scientific studies on that, and where they have been able to prove that eyewitness memory and testimony is very powerful, very, very powerful. Uh, hearsay, on the other hand, is another word for that would be gossip. So, not it's not admissible, admissible in a court of law, uh, but eyewitness testimony is. So somebody that witnesses a crime can testify to that, but someone that's been told about a crime cannot testify to it. So, yes, eyewitness testimony is very powerful and and legitimate and scientifically proven to be legitimate.
0: That's very interesting because um... – of course, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of court cases where it's turned out that eyewitness testimony wasn't so accurate and people are let, let go from, from the, from prison all the time because they were misidentified. And, uh, so, but interestingly enough, I think that you know i'm writing i'm in the process of writing as i speak an introduction to the new edition of communion that's coming out in may and i am struggling with how valid and re- and accurate are my memories and that's why i also came across this same article and i was surprised that eyewitness memories it, when they're tested turn out to be pretty accurate for the most part
1: right I mean, anyone can make a mistake, I suppose, um, but as far as eyewitness testimony about a near-death experience, that's, uh, you know, I, nothing about my experience has changed in my memory in 33 years. I don't expect it to change. Um, you know, I, I. I can close my eyes and remember being in that garden and still see every detail and remember every word that I was told. So I, I think it's a very powerful tool. I yeah. testimony, and that is part of the reason that my essay was selected because it was one of the few essays written. Most of them were written by scientists and doctors who are studying and running yes. large studies on near death experience mine was one of the very few that was written by someone who has actually experienced it
0: Yeah and, that's why I have you I'm having you on the show
1: Yeah and came at it from that angle which is very different
0: Because I think that I think it's very important I think that this type of testimony is critical that, you know, here you are saying that this happened to you and I'm convinced, frankly, and I think my listeners probably are and viewers probably are too. Yeah, it it does happen. And that means we've got to live our lives in a very conscious and aware way. And when we get back subscribers, we're going to talk about just what Elizabeth has learned about living this life in such a way that your afterlife comes to you as something valuable and good and fruitful and maybe something that does not require you to come back to this hard place for another lesson. For those of you on the free side of the show, thank you so much for being with us. Come again next week. We're always just glad to have you. I want to thank Elizabeth. Her book is changed in a flash. It's available, I'm sure on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or wherever you shop for books. Don't miss it. It's a wise, wonderful, and exciting tale, indeed. And with Jeff, written with our dear mutual friend, Jeffrey Kreifel, who ought to be called St. Jeffrey, but we don't do that anymore. So, goodbye, subscri- goodbye, free Dreamlanders. The subscribers will keep on keeping on. Okay. So, Elizabeth, let me ask you the question what do we need to do in this life in order to perhaps be freed of having to return or to have a good afterlife? Because this is a huge part of your essay.
1: Yes, it was a huge part. What I've learned is that what we do here while we're here actually matters. It really matters a lot how we live our lives, um, are are we a, a big part of the afterlife is your expectation. And so if you live a good, clean life, um, you will expect to be, I don't want to say rewarded, but that's what it is rewarded. With a good afterlife and go to heaven, um, and then you will. I I I don't. It it sounds so trite to say it, but you know, it, you know right from wrong. And a person that lives a a life, a criminal who is uh, hurting people, breaking laws, they know they're wrong. And they probably do not expect to go to heaven. Um, that I think our expectation sets the groundwork for what we experience after we die. At least in my case, it did, for sure. And the information, the way it was explained to me while I was there, was exactly that. That you live a good life, you you do what you're supposed to do, and you expect to go to heaven and lo and behold, that's what happens. Um, it's, it's your expectation.
0: What about those of us like me? And I'm sure like a lot of other people who listen to the show who worry, a- yeah. am I living a good life? Because like, I know you worry, of course you do.
1: Of course I worry. I, I mean, okay, I'm Jewish, I worry.
0: <laughs> I'm Catholic. I, I'm. You're on a Jewish guilt trip. I'm on a Catholic guilt trip. Yes. So you know we worry. And and what about good people who die worried that they've 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 you done know, terrible things and they on, really haven't? Well,
1: because on a soul level, yes, I worry. I I worry all the time. And on a soul level, though, I know I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person. I think on a soul level, you know, you're a good person. And that's what I'm talking about. Not just, Oh, did I give money enough money to charity? And, and did I help that little old lady across the street when I saw her last week? It's not that kind of thing. It's, it's the knowing, knowing in your soul that you are a good person and deserving of heaven. And good
0: people sometimes make serious mistakes.
1: Mistakes, yes. A mistake serious is.
0: mistakes. Like in my life, what if I'm yes. all wrong about all this stuff with the visitors? You know, I've made now, a serious mistake.
1: If you are wrong, it was a mistake. It was not an intentional. That That's what I'm saying. A good person, a, a person with a good soul knows that they mean well. And I know that's the case with me. I'm so far from perfect and I make mistakes all the time, but it's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to ha- do that same act intentionally. Those are two very different things. And so well, when I, I said, to-
0: make a mistake, I, a lot of us make do things that we later regret. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see too much in my own life, but I know I have dear friends who deeply regret things that they did and, uh, and that they're done. There's no one doing them.
1: Right. Well, part of that regret is regretting it is an act of showing that you're a good person. A bad person would not feel regret, a good yeah. person would reg-
0: I think that's the key, the I, tremendous yeah. regret.
1: Mm-hmm. That- there's such forgiveness, Whitley. I mean, that was such a big part of my near-death experience was the forgiveness. It. It was just, it was heaped on me.
0: How did you experience that and what was forgiven?
1: Everything was forgiven and I experienced it as unconditional love. That's how I knew I was forgiven. That love, that all encompassing love. I mean, the love was was woven into everything that was in the garden. It was very sensory. It was the flowers. Everything was infused with the love and that's how I knew I was forgiven, you know, not that I had ever done anything. So I, okay. I was only 28 when it happened. And, and so now in the past 33 years, have I done some bad things? Yeah, sure. I have, um, because I'm human, but those things, I know those things will be forgiven because I know on a soul level, that I am a good person.
0: You have that. You have that very great, powerful certainty. I can see it in your face and hear it in your voice.
1: Yeah, the conviction. It's a conviction. You know. You just know. And I think. Um, I, I mean, I think you know what I'm talking about. Oh,
0: sure, I, I do. I have that. I have that too, very much so. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners do. But, you know, we all, every human being makes mistakes. And every human being sometimes does things they know perfectly well they shouldn't do, but they do them anyway. Out of anger or something. And this is what we have to take with us. You know what Annie said, and I must never forget this. After her near-death experience, she wrote a perfectly beautiful diary on uh, unknown country uh, uh, after she was still very much alive. This is before she died. And it was about her own NDE. And she was in a bus station and Annie's typical of Annie or her NDE was not a cool, beautiful gardener at all it was just a bus station, but she was there and there were a lot of people there and they all had big suitcases and things they were carrying. And, she had a message that she repeated again and again in her life, and I'm repeating it now for her because she's right back there and right in here and right in here and maybe right in here, um, that you have to put the burdens down. You have to make a conscious effort. Put it down. Give it up. Yeah, you you were the ugly side of a hard divorce. Give it up. Yeah, you slapped your children. Yeah, you're the one who menaced and did terrible things to Elizabeth when she was a little girl. How can you ever put that burden down? That strength of being that enables you to forgive yourself what you could not in the end help doing or you would not have done it.
1: Everybody has baggage. Everybody.
0: Yeah. You have
1: to down. You have to release it.
0: You have and, to. And it's yeah. hard to. Because your baggage is part of your identity. Right. And your shame is well, too.
1: The baggage is also lessons. The baggage, you know, you get something out of it. Even the bad baggage. There's... There's something to be gained. There's a lesson in there. So, you know, you, you have to release it. You have to forgive yourself. Um, you know, that's another thing I find easier now after my NDE is I'm much, I'm not as hard on myself as I used to be. I, I really go easy on myself now.
0: Did you get the sense during the NDE that this extraordinary loving presence, um, who in your case <laughs> had a French accent and sounded like your granddad, do you think that this presence will help us forgive ourselves? Because that's a hard thing to do, boy. You see what... The consequences of some awful thing you did. And you think, With, how can I ever yeah, forgive myself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it happens just instantly. As soon as you know that God has forgiven you, uh, you're forgiven. You forgive yourself. It, it's, it's done. It's done. It's instant. It's not something you have to dwell on and keep revisiting. The lesson is learned. Once a lesson is learned, you're done with it. You're, it's finished.
0: If we're going to keep ascending and not come back here, Mm -hmm. what do we need to, how do we need to live in order to come to that? point and to to leave the wheel of life
1: well you know i think the lessons each time we come back there are certain lessons that we come back knowing we need to accomplish in this lifetime and sometimes we accomplish all of them and sometimes we don't and we have to come back and repeat them not all of them are are good things I, I mean, sometimes I personally believe that that's why there are bad people here. There's a lesson that person has to learn from, from that bad act. And, um, so hopefully that doesn't have to be repeated. Um, I I think it takes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of lifetimes to get to a point where you don't have to come back here. I, I know that uh, I'm not even close. I, I already know that this, this isn't it for me. I'm going to have to do this again. Um, I, I, I don't even know if we know when we're getting close to that point. You know, I, I just, I don't know.
0: I don't either, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I feel, I, 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 like Annie, I saw Annie ascend and I felt her make the decision to return for a very specific experience, which was to experience being raised in a loving family because she was a, an orphan and pretty brutally rejected when she was a child. She had the appalling experience of finding her mother committed suicide. She found her mother at the age of seven. And then her father just rejected her. And uh, she ended up kind of living in a basement room. I mean, it was just a, a, a classic uh sort of uh, Cinderella story in a way, I and mean, only there was no, no no glass slipper I mean, you, you know, I, I, my feet are much too big <laughs> and hers were much too bad for glass slippers but in any case, only when we met did she begin to have a family really, and um, she came back to experience that, in other words, she didn't come back for a lesson, she came back for an experience of a kind of love that she wanted to to have and is having and I, I know where she is, and she's in a a lovely family, a very good family. And um, and she's a ma- male also. She used to say, before any of this happened to us, she said, you know what, I'm telling you one thing, Whitley, if I come back to this life, I'm not coming back as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> she preferred the male role. True
1: to, word. True to her word. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so... But, you know, so there's other reasons. It, it, people will come back for positive reasons, too, I think.
1: Oh, I agree. I've just yeah. because we've learned everything we need to doesn't mean that we can't choose to come back. We can. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think we cycle back many times with the same group of people.
0: Isn't that interesting? I, I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the group of people who came to the cabin had something to do with me. I was a living body in their group.
1: Right. Whitley, when you were talking about that and you said, I know one of them. Yes. I wanted to say then, no, you know all seven of them.
0: Yeah, you're right. You do. I do. Yes. Uh, Listen, before we go, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh work that has been done to try to i want to I don't want to say quantify but to try to regularize nde studies so that they can be addressed not not with the classic scientific method but in an organized and consistent way let's talk about things like the 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 grace and scale and what has emerged from it because there's a lot going on folks and uh You know, a a, a lot of us, even with our Western minds, are going to be able to live with this and accept this viscerally, even without without classic scientific method proof. But tell us about, for example, that scale or the NDEC scale. Well,
1: I think the biggest thing that has happened to further the acceptance of near-death experiences and other experiences, uh, other spiritual experiences, is the biggest thing is the internet. Before the internet existed, um, I don't know if the internet itself has brought the research to us and has kind of overwhelmed us with research or has desensitized us, maybe, uh, and whatever it is, it's much more accepted now than it used to be. People are talking about it. People are researching it. The Grayson Scale, which was created by Bruce Grayson, who has spent his entire career researching near death, um, you know it's things like that where where anyone who feels like they've had a near death experience can go online and and look at the Grayson scale and give themselves a score and and see if that score meets the threshold of actually having a near death experience um There's also things like okay, there's Robert Bigelow who is putting a huge amount of money toward this research and he recently set up a new board of directors and I was invited to be on that board of directors as was Jeffrey Mishlov. and uh, th- this new company that he has started, uh, the Bigelow Institute, will be putting a huge amount of money toward this research, which will just further the understanding that society has of this and society has just come i am telling you in the last 30 years leaps and bounds the the first time the term near death experience was even used was by raymond moody in 1975 and so i guess a lot of your listeners are are Young enough to where that seems like a long time ago. Yeah. It really wasn't that long ago. You know, that's that's recent history, and so it's not that old. And we've come a long way in a short period of time. Is what I'm trying to say.
0: Um, will the Bigelow Institute be doing anything in the direction of after death communication?
1: Um, you know, uh, I know that's a big area of research and we've only had one board meeting. So this is very new and I, I can't really discuss, um, where a lot of the funding might be going. Um, but that is a big area of research. There are many schools of thought on that, um, And I think you're going to hear a lot more about that in the, in the months and years to come.
0: Well, that's good. Uh, because you do, you, you get into it a little bit in your, um, in your, uh, essay and you talk about telephone calls. Can Hmm. you tell us a little bit about telephone calls from the world of the dead?
1: Well, I received a phone call from my grandfather, and this time it was actually my grandfather and not God using his voice, Uh, but he called me in 1990, which was two years after my near-death experience, and the phone actually rang, and it was, you know, 3.30 in the morning, and it woke me up, and it woke my husband up, and uh, my husband heard my end of the conversation. I heard my grandfather clear as a bell and I was asked, actually it was Jeff Kripel that asked me, we were working on our book and he asked me if, if your husband had taken the phone from you, would he have heard your grandfather's voice? And immediately I answered, no, he would have heard static. He would have just heard white noise static it was it's an energy thing and the voice was intended for me it was intended for me to hear and i heard it and i don't think he would have heard it i think he would have just heard static
0: well we're eager to know what he said what happened
1: (laughs) he was actually calling um because he could not reach my mother and he needed to tell her where something was and he asked me to call her and tell her where she could find it which i did and she did
0: are you is this too personal to describe in detail or can you tell us
1: oh it, it was it was a, a folder it it had some information in it it wasn't anything it was nothing that would have been important to anyone else other than than her
0: but you realize what you're saying here is that someone from the world of the dead told you where to find something you didn't know where it was and it was there
1: yes he had put it there he
0: He had had yes and she needed it
1: she needed it yes
0: god what fascinating
1: yeah oh my
0: that's a remarkable thing
1: it is. Yeah. It's it
0: absolutely is. remarkable, Elizabeth. Where do you think this is going to go in your life? Uh, do you, do you consciously make efforts to extend your, your relationship with the other level of reality?
1: Sometimes I do. Um, you know, I, I will reach out to people that have died and, <laughs> For example, your wife, I I have reached out to her, and she has responded. You know, one time I asked her, if you can hear me, send me a white moth. And within an hour of asking for that, I walked into my sister's house, and my sister said, I've got to show you this new game table I got. And she showed it to me, and it's this table with a plexiglass cover, like a display table almost, with this plexiglass cover. It's the size of a card table, and it has hundreds of white moths in it. That's what it is. And that was within an hour of asking her to show me a white moth. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you have a you have a relationship with Anne. You're not alone. I do too. And a lot of people do. And Anne, Anne gets around.
1: <laughs> she's very um what's the word? She she's very good at it. She's yes. easy to very easy to contact. You know, I've also got a friend who passed away recently who was uh, an Epis, Episcopalian minister, and I asked him. I said, you know, if everything we talked about is really true and you're there and you can hear me, send me a sign and make it something really big that I can't miss and make it something important to you so that I know it's you. And when I asked for this, I was actually lying on the beach in Galveston, Texas, and I opened my eyes Um, My daughter was there with my granddaughter and they were down at the water and she called out to me and I opened my eyes and there in the sky was this enormous cross that like two airplane vapor trails had made a big cross in the sky.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: It's like, I could almost hear him laughing. And saying, there you go, my little Jewish friend. There's something for
0: you. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. The sense of humor is just on display for sure. So, what happened in this relationship with this?
1: Oh, well, he was, he was very important to me. He was a very good friend of mine. He wrote a book. His name was um, John Price, and he wrote a book called uh, the Christian near-death experience. And for years and years, I tried to find Jewish rabbis to talk to about this. I mean, I had this spiritual experience and uh the rabbis were not real receptive to hearing about it. And when John wrote this book, it was written up in the Houston Chronicle and I saw the write-up about it. So I contacted the publisher Who gave me his email address and i emailed him and within 10 minutes my phone rang and he said this is john price and i was like wow
0: oh (laughs) wow oh wonderful
1: and he said oh you're you're jewish and i said yes and he said can i take you to lunch i said sure so we met each other that lunch was four hours long but the first thing he said to me was did you see Jesus? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, oh, then I don't think you had a near-death experience. But up until that point, he had only dealt with Christians that yes. had, had peace. And so that his entire view changed from that point forward. And he began to understand that expectation expectation plays a big role in this i never would have expected to see jesus and i didn't and maybe you know i told him later i said maybe i did and maybe i didn't recognize him you know i I don't know but no i wouldn't have expected to see jesus and i didn't
0: well on that note um perhaps we will all see what we need to see when we finally pass over the bar, uh, across the bar into the other world. You know, I get the impression, Elizabeth, we're coming up on the end of the show, but I feel a very good, warm, good feeling about being alive. This conversation has been very in very strengthening because uh, we all struggle with what will happen to me and people... People who brush aside and others and think, oh, well, you know, they don't matter. You know, they're, they're just Russian soldiers or Ukrainian soldiers or though they all died in the, this or that. Every single person matters immensely. Uh, like Annie says about compassion, when I asked her that, she said simply each of us is all we have. And I got the feeling in talking to you that that's a good thing that yes i am all i have and that's fine that's enough and i'm okay and i think we're going to journey on in a a good way most of us so thank you for that it was a beautiful interview you're a good person and i always so enjoy talking to you
1: always a pleasure always a pleasure whitley yeah
0: (laughs) and um Do you ever get any questions for Annie? This today would be a good day to ask him because she's listening very closely. You can be sure.
1: Yes, I am sure.
0: (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you.
1: Okay. Thank you. You've
0: been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizel. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.